0: So this evening, I have given the game away, haven't I? This evening, I want us to consider what is one of the more, I think, one of the more familiar episodes uh, in the Old Testament book of Numbers. It is a story, isn't it, that is as mysterious as it is brief. Um, But before we do that, before we get to this story of a bronze serpent, I want you, I want to ask you to do something. I want you to do some work. Because before we get to this text, I want to ask you this evening to pray. Uh, here this evening in this section of scripture, we are confronted with what I think is the path uh, to true life. So, this is a section that shows us how people can be healed and healed from a poison, the poison, that affects all of humanity. So I want to ask you this evening, just now, to pray. And I would ask you, first of all, to pray for yourself in these moments. If you're a Christian, pray for yourself. Pray that God, in these moments, might remind you of what it is that he has done for you in Jesus Christ, that you might go out of here rejoicing in Jesus' name. So pray for yourself. But then I would also ask you just now to pray for others, others in the room who perhaps don't know Jesus, others who are maybe even tuning in uh, to this live feed. Pray for them that even tonight, God might take previously closed hearts and even tonight he might open them and open them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you do that? Will we briefly pray? Let's pray. Again we come. Oh God, you have made it easy in Christ to do that. We pray that you would remind us or we we think here of the poison that affects all of humanity. Lord God, there is a path to life that you have provided. Would you remind us of this, that we might go out and be doers of your word? But Lord, there are people under the curse. There are people yet in Christ, people perishing, people in condemnation. Have mercy, almighty God, tonight. And please save for your glory, we pray. Amen. The first thing that I want us to notice here is the attitude of man to God. So if you have scripture there, the attitude of man to God, what is this? I mean, we are out of the blue from Proverbs, jumping on a Sunday evening, smack bang into the the heart of this book of Numbers. What on earth? What, What are we dealing with here? Well, of course, primarily the book of Numbers is concerned with a period of time the people of Israel spent where? In the wilderness, in the desert. And I'm sure you know the story. The people of God have been taken where? Out of slavery in Egypt. They have traveled towards Israel and they have found themselves on the cusp of the promised land and they have grumbled, grumbled, grumbled. And what has God done? Actually, what has God not done? God has not, amazingly, God has not in a moment wiped them out in their grumbling. But God has sentenced them to 40 long years. 40 long years wandering the wilderness. You know it, I know it. That's the focus of the book of Numbers. Now, what I need you to appreciate at this juncture is that the section that we are focusing on tonight comes at the very, very, very end of that period of time. Is everyone with me? So, Numbers 21. Numbers 21, the 40 years they've come and they've gone. The 40 years have passed, and the people of Israel here, as we're reading this, the people of Israel are once again making their way to Canaan, making their way to the promised land. So, in light of that, <laughs> what are you expecting to read in Numbers, 20, Numbers 21? like, The 40 years of God. They're they're walking towards God's promised land. Can I tell you what I'm expecting to read? I'm expecting to find relief, (laughs) joy, euphoria. And then you look with me at verse 4. And what do you actually find? Look at this and see if you can believe it. The people grew impatient on the way. Isn't that, isn't that striking for you a little bit? I mean, I think you can see what's happened. Like the, the Edomites have blocked the last leg of the journey. And so what the people of Israel are having to do is kind of retrace their steps for a little bit. And they're having to go round that hostile territory. And to be honest, the people of Israel, they quite simply are just not happy about this at all. But I don't want you to get this wrong, okay? So it's, it's not like, uh, it's not that the Israelites were moaning a little bit. It's not as though they are like you are and I am first thing in the morning if we haven't had our caffeine, if we haven't had our coffee. It's not that they were a bit frustrated. It's not that they were just a little bit cheesed off. If you look at verse five, what do you see? Believe it if you can. What do you read? They spoke against God. Now, can you believe it? I mean, you know this the story, you know what's happened. Isn't it incredible to read that when you think about what God has done for them in the desert? What's God done? When we know all the stories, God's provided them with water. God's provided them with food. God's provided them with leadership. He's given them direction. In the the section above, just at the beginning of chapter 21, God has even answered their prayer, protected them from harm, and they're what? They're complaining, they're they're moaning. Don't you see it is a scene of rebellion, isn't it? Rebellion that's building up before your eyes. But we are not quite done yet. <laughs> because what I find most shocking is how the people of Israel describe God's provision here in these verses. See, I think, I think everyone in here knows the, the story. And the young people, the young people in here, you also know the story of the manna in the desert. We know that, don't we? We all have covered it in Sunday school. We certainly covered it in church. The manna in the, the desert. What was the manna like? Do you know what the manna was like for the young people? It was sweet tasting, it was beautiful. I'm gonna go out in a limb and say it was like donuts. Okay? Manna was beautiful. They needed food, and God miraculously provides them not just sustenance, but beautiful sustenance. And do you see how they speak about it at the end of verse 5 here, or in verse 5? They, they call it worthless. Like, that, that, that's, a, that's a word that means miserable. That's a word that, that means detestable. I mean, I do almost want to turn it over to you and ask, what do you think about this portion of the scripture? What do you think about this, this attitude that's on display? You're with me when I say it's awful. I mean, the ingratitude here. I mean, they are treating a loving and gracious, merciful God and with absolute disdain, aren't they? But we pause, don't we? And we think, okay, 21st century Dundee, what does this mean for us in, in Dundee? Well, I think what we have before us is a picture. I'm honest. We strip it away. I think we have here a picture of how we, all of fallen humanity, how we have treated a loving and gracious and sovereign, good and kind God. Isn't that what we have here? You can see it, can't you? I mean, it's it's true in Adam. Of course it's true in Adam. If you think about the Garden of Eden, it wasn't just manna. God provided everything there, everything, all of these fruit bearing trees, beauty of Eden. What does Adam do? And he, he rebels against God. It's true in Adam, but we have to face facts that it's true of every subsequent human life. What have we done? What has God given but everything to us, hasn't he? God gives us this beautiful creation. He gives us food and he gives us water, love, families. He gives us art. He gives us music. And look at us. What is sinful, fallen humanity's response to that? But we moan and we grumble and we rebel against this holy God. I hope you see it. I hope you see it as disgusting as this picture of rebellion before us truly is, the reality is that fallen man, we are guilty of not just a similar but an even more despicable attitude to a loving God. So we see the attitude. But second of all, we see the predicament of man before God. The predicament of man before God. Because (laughs) moving on, Surely we must now ask, how then does God respond to this? Aren't you a little bit on the edge of your seat this evening asking that? I mean, look at these people. They're moaning, they're grumbling, rebelling against God. God is not going to sit idly by, is he? So we're sitting wondering, well, 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 what is God going to do? Well, let's look at it. Could you, would you zero in on verse 6? And let's look at this together. Look at verse 6. Can we read it? Then the Lord sent serpents. You read that? Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And these serpents, they bit the people so that many died. You read that, did you? What I need you to to know just now is just how I think evocative the language is at this point in Holy Scripture. So I know that in front of me just now there are a lot of copies of the Bible and I know that in front of you are a variety of different translations of the Bible. That's right, isn't it? Some of us are advocates and passionate advocates for certain particular uh, translations of the Bible. Some of you will be It'll be the NIV is, is, is the only way, uh, or it'll be the King James or the New King James or whatever it'll be. We all have our favorites, usually the one we're being brought up with, right? Now, because of that, some of you will have this in front of you in, in Scripture in the copy that you've got in front of you because it's commonly uh, rendered like this, that what God sent were venomous snakes, Some of you have got that venomous snakes come. But actually, I do think here, and just here, this is not that they're not fighting an ESV battle here, but here the ESV is more accurate when it describes as we have on the screen. What does it say? Not venomous snakes, but fiery snakes fiery serpents. Now, can you see, if you enter into that, can you see what's in view here? How does God respond to this rebellion? In an instant, in that camp, thousands of angry, vicious snakes swarm amongst the people and countless, People are bitten. There's chaos everywhere. Here's the important thing. What was the bite like? You know it, don't you? It was a fiery bite. That's what we're being told. That the bite from these snakes caused exceeding pain. It was a pain that surged through these people, devastating, destroying them with poison from within. What is it? It's a fiery bite, a fiery bite. Now, as we consider that for ourselves, perhaps we can see that what we have before us there with this fiery bite, it's an illustration, it's a picture for us, but of what? Of what? Well, I think in this bite, these fiery serpents, we're given a picture of the consequence of man's rebellion against God. I would ask you to walk with me on this. A consequence, a picture of the consequence of our rebellion. Is it not true that in the Garden of Eden, in a sense that we too have been bitten by a serpent? Isn't it the case that in the fall, spiritually speaking, a, a snake has Plunged its fangs spiritually into us and to all of humanity. As I stand here in front of you at this moment in time, what is true of all of us? But the poison of sin that rushes through your life and my life, eating us uh, away from inside. We've been bitten by a fiery serpent, too. And if you you see that, do you not also see where this situation will end? Because you think about it. See these people in the wilderness? They knew this. They knew unless there was divine intervention soon, unless God did something miraculous and gracious soon, they were going to die, and they were going to face the full force of God's judgment. Is that not also true for our planet? Is that not true for, for this population in Dundee? Is that not true of humanity? If people remain outside of Jesus Christ and firm in rebellion, what will happen? Ultimately, the poison of sin will lead to a second death. The poison of sin will lead to the full force of of God's judgment on that sin. You look at this. You look at this short, mysterious portion of Scripture. What do you think tonight? Surely you are face to face with the predicament, the serious, grave predicament of, of humanity before a holy and righteous God. So we see an, an attitude, a horrible attitude. We see a predicament because of that. But then, thirdly, we see an antidote, or the antidote uh, for man uh, from God. Years ago, um, I gave a kids' talk. And it was a, a kid's talk, in a, it was a different church. It was a church uh, in a, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, it was a really simple, a terrible kid's talk, maybe, I don't know. Maybe that's why I haven't reused it at St. Peter's. Uh, but it was a kid's talk that involved a torch, and it involved a big black sheet of paper. You got it, a torch and a, a sheet of paper. And it was a really bright church and all the lights were on in this church and so what I did was I shone the torch about in this really bright church and I asked the kids could they see the beam from the torch and of course all the kids are looking at me on no I've even got the torch on they couldn't see anything then what did I do then I got the people to switch off all the lights in the church we got this big black sheet of paper it's all dark And it shone the torch against this big black sheet of paper. And then all the kids were excited because now they could see this beam of light. It was a way of illustrating, really, that we only see the light of the gospel when we can appreciate the darkness of our own hearts. We only appreciate the light of Jesus Christ, don't we, when we appreciate the blackness of our sin. Well, see this portion of Scripture, thus far and it's been D-A-R-K, hasn't it? Hasn't it been dark? You know, this rebellion against God, this predicament that they find themselves in. This is what I hope as we move on here, as we come to what's next, the grace of God. I hope and I have prayed that it will shine tonight for you. Christian, the light of the goodness and the grace of God will shine. So, so what, what happens next? Well, I I doubt that there's anyone in here who would argue that these people did not deserve their punishment. Don't shout out; you can address it with me later. But I doubt anyone in here is going to say that they didn't deserve it after such ingratitude to God. And yet, what does God do? I mean, they have—they have rebelled against Him, shown such ingratitude. And do you see what God does? God provides a cure. Is that not amazing? God provides a cure for them. And and what is the cure? You you can see it in in verse 8. Now, you need to get this. In verse 8, God has the people placed high on a tall pole. It is a representation of a snake, isn't it? And it's a symbol up there on this high, tall pole. It's a symbol that will provide for all who look upon it. This symbol will provide healing, restoration, weight. It'll provide life. (laughs) Now, this evening, again, I want you to do some work. Because tonight, what I want us to do as a congregation is to walk towards this symbol, this image that's high on this pole And I want you with me to notice just the two little details about this representation and this image from this text. Will you do that with me? Notice two things. Now, here's the first thing that you need to notice about this representation. Number one is its color. Look with me at verse 9. So what color is this snake? Do, Do you see? What is it? Again, it depends on our translations. It says it was bronze. Maybe it was bronze. I think more likely uh, this snake, the serpent, was copper. It's copper. Okay, now, the important thing, therefore, is how this snake, in the light of the Middle Eastern sun, how this snake would therefore have looked to the people who are bitten in this camp. So let's get technical for a moment. Can we do that? Uh, I don't know if we've got specialists in the room, but what sort of metal is copper or bronze? How would we classify copper or bronze? They are, it is a red metal. We could go different places, but that's one thing that's true of that, right? This is a red metal. Now, wait with me. This serpent on this pole it is a reddish tint is made of red metal you see but what difference does that make the snake was red and i want to say to you tonight that would have made all of the difference in the world to the people in that camp you see think about our first reading in numbers 19 did you notice it In Numbers 19, now this has just happened for these people. In Numbers 19, God taught those people about sin. In Numbers 19, God taught those people about purification for sin. He taught them how God was going to deal with sin. Now, I wonder if you got this very important detail from Numbers 19. Listen, please. Everything in that chapter is red. God is teaching the people about purification, and everything was red. Did you notice that in the reading? There was a red heifer, wasn't there? A red cow that was to be killed for purification. And then what was next? Did you notice? Then a red cord had to be thrown into the fire. See, the fire itself had to be made with, what is it, red-colored wood that had to be burned. Why? Why red? Because as the people in Numbers 21 would now know, red was God's color of atonement. Do you see? Red symbolized God's plan to deal with his people's sins through the sacrifice of something else or Someone else, and so do you now see what the camp would be able to recognize in this red snake? They were able to realize even this sin can be forgiven. Even this sin of rebellion and grumbling and complaining and mourning, even this sin by God's grace can be forgiven. The people rejoice. Why? Because the snake was red. It's a bronze snake. It's a copper snake. But then the Second element here. As we walk towards this this image and we we study it, the the second point is as obvious, I suppose, as it is weird. Because what animal is it? What is this representation? What is this image? What is it? It's a snake. Now, if you this evening just contemplate that even for for a second or two, do you not see how strange and peculiar that is? It's strange, number one, because, you know, what's the last thing you would expect to heal, you know, the, the poison from one snake would be the representation of another snake. There's that. But why else is this strange? A snake. For the people of Israel is the most cursed of animals, isn't it? It is something that is truly and properly to the people of Israel at the time, unclean, unclean. In the aftermath of the Garden of Eden, a snake is for these people something that symbolizes just sin. Is this not a great paradox? Healing is coming how? How? By looking at a snake. But perhaps this evening, if you linger on it for a moment, then you understand what Almighty God is doing at St. Peter's this evening. And is our loving God not taking you and pointing you in the snake to his great final redemptive act, his great redemptive work? Because if you are honest with yourself and if you look back at your life You know that, like these people, you deserve punishment for your sin, don't you? We all in here. And I wonder, against this dark backdrop, does the light of the gospel shine brightly in your life this evening? Because what has God done for you? Hear the words for you. He has provided a snake, hasn't he? In the person of his own son, God has provided a substitute, a once and for all substitute for your sin. And what was the nature of Jesus' death? You can see he was lifted high on a tall wooden pole. And he would up there become the representation, the personification of sin. What is it that Paul tells us? That they are up there Christ became sin for us. What is the good news of the gospel? Let me tell you what it is. There is a remedy available, and it's Christ. The cure for this poison is the cross. There's an antidote. Can you believe God has given an antidote? And what is it? But the spilt blood, the atoning blood of His own Son And what is it that Jesus, your Lord, your Savior, says to you in John chapter 3? Can I read it for you? Jesus says to you, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. What joy, Christian friends. God has given us anti-venom and what is it is this anti-venom only in Jesus Christ so we've seen an attitude a predicament and then amazingly an antidote Uh, but the last thing and most briefly of all we see tonight the response of man towards God I'm very conscious speaking on a Sunday night it's a busy day it's a day of rest and yet it's a busy day isn't it? It's a day of fellowship and it's a day of worship. And a lot has been said today. But I'm also conscious that what we come to now is perhaps the most important, important point and moment of the whole of our Sabbath day. And so if you're not yet in Christ, and if the young people would listen to, if you're not in Christ, Consider what we see next. Now, what happens? What do we find? The people of Israel in the camp, they are bitten. Do you feel the force of it? They are dying, and the snake is raised up, this bronze snake on a pole. Now, you can see the, the question that hangs in the air, the tension here. What's the question? The question they're asking is how can we appropriate the blessing that comes from the serpent? So this is healing, but how do we get the healing? How do we know the life and recovery that comes from this image here? Well, there's two aspects again, uh, equally important. The first, I wonder if you noticed it, there has to be repentance from sin. I wonder if you spotted it, because I have to say as your minister that I did not uh, spot the repentance straight away. In verse 7... Do we see it? What do the people cry out? They cry, we have sinned. Those three words that we prayed earlier on. Do you you see what's happening? The, The bite, the predicament, the beginnings of God's judgment upon this camp, it has quite simply awoken their conscience. They realize the rebellion, they're grumbling against God, and they cry out, Lord, forgive us. There's contrition here. There is repentance but there is something more now, i wonder we close with this if you look at verse 8 there's repentance now this is immensely subtle isn't it in verse 8 but i want to suggest what they must do is look they must fix their eyes upon this image this serpent i'll, I'll maybe read verse 8 do you see it right there M- moses says make a fiery serpent set it on and anyone who is bitten when he sees it, shall live. Now, again, what I need you to appreciate is the force of the verb, the nuance of the language. The idea is not here that as they're lying, dying, with this poison flowing through them, that as long as they just gaze up at this image on a pole, then everything will be tickety-boo and everything will be fine. It's not that idea. More often in Scripture, the verb here is, is rendered like this. The idea is to see with understanding, to look, fix your eyes, and perceive. I wonder, do you see what has to happen here? These people have to see and believe. If they are to appropriate the blessing, they have to repent of their sins, and they have to trust, and trust in God's work of salvation. So it'll come... As no surprise to anyone in this room where we land and where we go to end this. Um, if you're not yet a Christian, understand that, that tonight's amazing, not because of me, but because of this text. Tonight, what God has done is he's brought you into this room or online. And what God has done here is he has shown you the way to be made right with him. In fact, I'm going to go a step further. Listen to this. What God has done as as this serpent was lifted up here through the preaching of the gospel, what God has done is raised Christ up before your eyes. Christ held high before you. And what do you need to do to be made right with God and to be forgiven? Can I tell you what you don't need to do? You don't need to resolve to turn your life around. That is not it. And you do not need to to, to resolve to pull your socks up and, and, and turn over a new chapter and you're gonna change how you live. That is not it at all. What do you need to do? Oh, it's beautifully simple. You need to repent of your sin and look. Look with the eyes of faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Son of God. I urge you, don't leave the room. Don't leave the building until you have done that. Because all the Christians in here, we know that that in Christ, that burden of guilt and shame is lifted from you forever and ever and evermore. So friend, come to Christ. Gaze upon the glorious one, the Savior, and know in him not just healing, but know in Jesus Christ, life and life forevermore. Friends, let's bow our heads before him and let's pray.